Let us pray. Heavenly Father, send the breeze of your Holy Spirit upon us this morning and rain down upon us dew from heaven that we may see your Son more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him with all our hearts for the rest of our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Good morning. Happy 4th of July to everyone. This may be the only sermon you'll ever hear on the 4th of July by a Brit. <laughs> so listen up before you shoot me. <laughs> it is the 245th anniversary of independence, a time of flags and parades, barbecues, it's also a day when the nation is looking forward to re-emerging from the pandemic. It's a time when we yearn for reopening schools and colleges, family reunions. Yet at the same time, there's a certain mixedness about it, a conflictedness about it. We're worried about variants. We're unsettled about our future. We're not sure about what kind of restored life we want. For some, looking back at pre-pandemic, we're looking with a certain sense of nostalgia, sentimentality even. And some today may feel an, a numbness, a certain emptiness, or feeling overwhelmed for the future. So what do we look like? What, where do we go in, in our sense of restoration? I think America is the place, the land of the free and the home of the brave, the place where the American dream persists. Or does it? Where can we look for restoration and hope? Where can we look for a hope that is enduring, that is real, that speaks to all the voices of our community, of all our personalities, of all our histories? Where can we look for a restoration that is enduring and substantive? Where can we look for a restoration that is historical and yet endures throughout all eternity? Where can we look? I think our psalm today, Psalm 26, 126, is a psalm of restoration. It needs to be read paired up with 125 to avoid evil and to trust in the Lord. And it's also part of the Songs of Ascents, this focus on Zion. But it's part of the final section of the book of Psalms, the fifth section that deals from 107 to the end, dealing with hope for restoration and renewal. The Psalms of Ascent are wedged between Psalm 119 and the previous five or so Psalms that deal with the Exodus from 113 to 118. And then you have 119, this acclamation of the very word of God. And it's like a sandwich and following up the Psalms of Ascent, Songs of Ascent, the deal with Zion itself. This is significant because the law speaks of renewal the law speaks of restoration. And we also find from the Psalms this hope for restoration resonates with the prophets. Isaiah 44 and 45 speak about this enduring restoration that God will bring to his elect people to re for the benefit of all creation and of all humanity. And so we find Psalm 126 linking to the prophetic hope and the hope of the law that to give this restoration for humanity. Well, it's poetry, and we can imagine these pilgrims on this dusty trail 
outside Jerusalem, seeing the walls in front of them, singing and praising God. But it's poetry that we're dealing with here. And it's divided into two sections. First of all, one to three, looking back. And then verses four to six, looking to the present and forward. So we'll look at it in these two sections. First of all, restoration remembered. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. There are probably many in the room today who remember the 53rd mayor of Boston, Mayor Menino. He's uh, credited with the renewal of this city. You may not have agreed with everything he did or how he said it, but from 1993 to 2014, his term in office, there was an amazing change in the city. When he began, street gang violence was at an all-time high. And Wakefield notwithstanding, today we can look in our streets and largely they are peaceful. Our parks are places where kids and families can play and have picnics. The Ferdinand Building is redeveloped and the Seaport District is established as a hub for innovation and business. Our city has been renewed and revived. And so to look back on restoration in our city or in our nation is a healthy thing for us to do, to consider our identity and the narratives that make and shape our life together of what has happened in the past, what has been fulfilled, and what is yet to be fulfilled. But from the psalmist, to look back on what the Lord has done is even more significant. It's even more profound and enduring. To look back at what the Lord has done to restore and even more significant for his people. And so he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. He highlights in this section four characteristics of the Lord. The first one is about the Lord's sovereignty. Notice that he doesn't say that, that the mayor of Zion restored the city. Notice that he doesn't say the governor of Judea restored the city. Notice he doesn't say the king of Israel restored the city. Notice he doesn't say King Cyrus or some Near Eastern potentate restored the city. No, he says the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. But what is Zion? Zion in scripture, in the Psalms, and the prophets equates with Jerusalem. It's the place of the great king where Yahweh himself dwells with his people. Zion is the place that the great king will rule, and he says that one day all the nations will recognize and submit to his rule and his jurisdiction. Zion is the place that Yahweh himself has promised to protect. In Isaiah 31.5, he talks like a bird hovering. The Lord will deliver and protect his people. And we saw that in 720 BC when the Assyrians, 185,000 of them, were launched on their campaign against Jerusalem and they were slain, touching God's city. But what are the fortunes of Zion? Some translations have the captivity of Zion. It can literally be translated the return of the returning ones or the return of the captives or the returning, restoring of our lives. Because this is not a, doesn't have a historical reference in the psalm, we cannot pinpoint exactly what this restoration is. But because it's poetry, 
we can legitimately say this must refer widely to any vivid experience in the national psyche, in the national memory, that we could refer to this sovereign act of restoration that the Lord Almighty has done for his people. Well, the second highlight here is a little nuanced, but I think it's fair to say that the restoration of God is an indicator of the grace of God. Upon my initial reading of this text, I was drawn fundamentally to the return from Babylon to Jerusalem, although it's not explicitly cited in the text. I think it's fair one could include it. And I, my mind went to 538 BC when King Cyrus of Persia issued that edict to return the people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. It's a journey equivalent to walking from Boston to New Orleans, about 1,600 miles or so. And in my own mind, I thought this was a one-shot deal. They would get on their donkeys or their horses or they'd walk and they'd all go there together. In actual fact, the historical record differs. It says this return happened over a 90-year period. There were waves of returnees, about 50,000 in all. And Ezra, one of the leaders of the community, reports to us in Ezra 1.5 that those who went had their spirits stirred by God. In other words, this sovereign, restoring God had invited and moved his people to participate with him in this work of restoration. Babylon had been like a sledgehammer whacking and destroying Israel. The wall was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, Israel as a nation state was destroyed, the monarchy was destroyed, and for 70 years they were in exile. It was a signal of military failure, of political failure, of financial failure. It was also a signal of their failure to become the people of God. And so their relocation from Babylon back to Jerusalem signaled not simply geography, it wasn't a matter simply of geography. This was a signal of a new revitalization of the people of new covenantal institutions, of reinterpreting what does it really mean to be the people of God in this new situation, very different from the past. And so it signaled that God himself was encouraging and inviting his people into this work of renewal. No wonder that they were like those who dream. It was inconceivable. We were beside ourselves. We couldn't believe our good fortune, as Eugene Peterson says in his paraphrase. Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian Baptist, put it this way. He said, God always never does anything by halves. Those he saves from hell, he brings to heaven. He turns exile into ecstasy, banishment into bliss. This was no ordinary dreaming. This was an incredible sense of excitement about what God had done in the past. He had averted his wrath on his people and he had returned his favor to them and they were besides themselves. Not only is the greatness of God signaled here or the grace of God, the, the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, thirdly, the greatness of God. He said, then the was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things. The Lord has done great things for us. The Babylonians, for 70 years, had enjoyed some favor, I suppose. They, though they had been the sledgehammer of God, they had overreached. And if you read in Jeremiah 25, you'll notice that the Lord himself will punish Babylon for their overreach. And so he does when the Persians take over Babylon. 
The Babylonians would realize that this God was more than they could handle. And the Persians too could probably acknowledge that the God of the Israelites was the true God, that he was not simply a local deity, that there was something profound going on here, that this God is the great king. He will act on his own terms in his own timetable. He does not justify himself. He does all things for his glory, for his good, for his purposes in the world. He is a great God who does great things and the nations will sit up and pay attention. Recently, the US government announced the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan. After 20 years of war, the troops will return. It's a situation that causes us here in North America to pray for the peoples of Afghanistan. One thinks of the women and the children of their uncertain future. And that we too, we can pray for those in that situation, in that country, about what is about to happen in Afghanistan. It reminded me of the foundation of the first Protestant church in Kabul in 1970. At the installation of the church, there was a beautiful Afghan alabaster that it had inscribed on it, to the glory of God who loves us, who has freed us from our sins, to be a house of prayer for the nations, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Three years later, the Muslim government destroyed that building. But as the bulldozers were encircled around the church building, a German businessman went to the mayor of Kabul, and he told him, if your government touches that house of God, God will overthrow your government, and your officials will be answerable to God. The mayor of Kabul ignored the words of the German businessman. That very evening, July the 17th, 1973, there was a coup. And the government that had been representing a monarchy that had been in power for 227 years was gone, completely destroyed. And then five years later, in 1978, the Soviet tanks march in and take over the country. It was around that time that an Afghan believer confided to another Christian, ever since our government destroyed that Christian church, God has been judging our country. This God is a great God. Malachi says that he will be great among the nations. His name will be honored among the nations. Well, the final aspect of this first part of the psalm is gladness. He says we are glad. From Jeremiah 25, we know the Lord extracted gladness from his people. There was no longer mirth and happiness amongst them. But here, because of the restorative work of God, that gladness is restored. And is it any wonder that it was restored? Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17 tells us, the Lord Almighty is in your midst, a mighty one to save. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is a God who, whose chest is thumping with praise. This is a God who is absolutely besotted with his people. This is a God who sings loudly over his people. He is a God of praise. He has done great works. He's rejoicing in his works, and his people are caught up in the restorative work of God. Should they not join with their maker 
in heart and soul of praise for what he has achieved, for what he has done on his terms and his timetable. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Then he pivots in verse 4. He pivots to, Lord, restore our fortunes. The verb changes to an imperative. Restore our fortunes. There's a focus on the present. It's a heart cry of the psalmist. Lord, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall return home with shouts of joy, bearing their sheaves with him. You can feel the intensity of this group of singers and worshipers as they see Jerusalem before them. Oh, Lord, send Send your restorative power in our lives. And he uses two images. They're interconnected in the poetry. Do you see it? The first one is streams in the Negev. Eugene Peterson puts it, and now God, do it again. Send rain to our drought-stricken lives. Water in the ancient Near East was vital for life. One thinks of the Nile in Egypt, or the Euphrates in Mesopotamia, or the Jordan in Canaan. And in our own experience in the United States at the current time, we openly need to look at the western part of the country with reservoirs and rivers at perilous levels of extreme heat and fires burning in western part of Canada. Water is essential to life. And for the Israelites, they didn't deify it as the other polytheists would, but they looked at water as a gift, a sign of God's blessing on the land. So it's a heart cry for streams in the Negev. The Negev, literally a dry area, the dry southern area, was a barren zone in Palestine, 40 square kilometers, received only two inches of rain a year, kind of a bit different than Boston recently. Uh, 20, 43 inches of a year seemed to all come last night. Here is a cry for those streams to burst into the, the dry gullies, to explode those dry riverbeds, that this would be an instantaneous, sudden outpouring from God. Streams in the Negev. Send the streams in the Negev. Bring that life to us of this dry, arid land, this sterile landscape that we're in. The poet T.S. Eliot used this sense of dryness in his poem, The Wasteland. T.S. Eliot was a modernist. He, didn't, he had rejected Christianity. He was, he was brought up in the Unitarian faith and was a champion philosopher in the early 1900s. And just after World War I, when the landscapes were blown up by bombs and so on, he used the, the, the wasteland as a, as a metaphor for the metaphysical wasteland of humanity, a dreary scape without any purpose or direction or meaning or profundity or of enduring nature, a wasteland of experience. And in it he writes, you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats. And the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no source of water. Only shadow is under the red rock. That was in 1922, and in a surprising twist of history, a few years later, in 1927, Eliot himself converted to biblical Christianity. He was baptized in 1927 and repudiated the modernism and the Unitarianism that he'd been part. His stone had been flooded, 
There had been a deluge in his soul that came from God himself. And this cry for the streams in the Negev is, is repeated. It's repeated even in New England. I think of Rufus Anderson, the missionary strategist from New England in the 19th century, who spoke about drops of heavenly grace, drops of heavenly grace that fell on this very city in the 1820s and 30s and 40s and 50s, in 1909, in the mid-century, when Ockingay and Bailey Graham, responsible, perhaps used by God for some revival movement in the city and the quiet revival over the last 20, 25 years in Boston. These are signs of God's reviving work, of increasing love for God, of compassion for others, of sacrificial service, of mission and ministry. Signs of his drops of grace falling on his people, renewing and reviving them. This is the first image, a heart cry, a yearning from the depths of his soul. The second one is agricultural, and can you see the connection? The landscape is dry and arid and needs to be rejuvenated and fertilized so that the seed can be sown. He who sows in tears will reap with shouts of joy. But this is this is gritty stuff. This is sweaty stuff. This is arduous, backbreaking, heartbreaking work because there's no guarantee the seed will yield a harvest. Or if it does, when will the harvest come and how much will the harvest be? Will, it, will they recoup their expenses? Will it be greater than what they've sown? How much will this harvest really yield? There is an uncertainty to it. But the, ha the, ha the hope of the, of the psalmist is positive. In the authorized version, he says, he who surely sows with tears, will surely reap. There is no birth without labor pains. There's no harvest without tillage pains. There's no startup companies, no startup 501c3 without elbow grease, without sweat equity. There is no gain without pain. Spurgeon said there are people who are winners of souls who are first weepers over souls. And so this calls for an endurance. This calls for more than simply a, a quick fix, if you will. And I think a great example of this, one that can help us, is from the book of Job, of steadfastness of Job. You remember the story? He began a man who feared God, a man of prayer, a man of sacrifice. And Satan came to Yahweh and said, he only likes you because you put a hedge of protection around him. Remove the hedge and he'll curse you to his face. And then we read through the book of Job. If you haven't read it, you see the pain, the existential angst, the loss of his children, the loss of his property, the loss of his financial resources, his relational breaking up with his friends, if you will, of his emotional state, his distraughtness. Endless cycles, it seems, of this questioning and wrestling. What does it mean to know this God? And then at the end of the book, chapter 42, we see the same phrase, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. After he'd prayed for his friends, the Lord blessed the end of his life more than the beginning. He gave him twice as much as he'd had. And the apostle James, when he interprets this for us in the New Testament, in chapter 5, verse 11, he said, we consider blessed those who remain steadfast. You know the, the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, who is compassionate 
and merciful. The purpose of the Lord, it's a striking phrase in the midst of suffering, of lament, of grief, of death. The purpose of the Lord. What is the purpose of the Lord? And it wasn't simply the restoration of his property, of his sheep and goats and camels. It wasn't simply the restoration of seven sons and three daughters. It was this encounter with his creator who did not explain suffering, did not rationalize it or justify it, but he encountered this creator God who is merciful and compassionate. And so the psalmist gives us these two pictures of crying out for streams in the Negev, of crying out for perseverance in adversity. Well, where does that leave us today? Where does it leave you? Where does it leave me? I think it leaves us with two questions. The first question is about our past, about our history. If you think of your life and draw a line from your birthday to today, can you look back on your history and your personal narrative on your story and can you, can you identify a time in your life, an unmistakable time, an inconceivable time when God restored you, when God worked so powerfully in your marriage, so powerfully in your relationship with your siblings, so powerfully in your church, so powerfully in your business. You say, yes, the Lord restored my fortunes. This I can look on my timeline. I can see what God did. And can you thank him for it? Not bot try to bottle it up and put it on a mantel shelf and let it get dust, but use that to filter into your soul, to give you a thankfulness, to give you a trust in this God. It's probably too soon for us to look back on the pandemic. But maybe... Maybe there have been whisperings of the Holy Spirit. Maybe there have been little rivulets that have come in the dry land that you can see that, that God is still in control of your life as you look back. But maybe this morning you've come to church and you didn't really want to come. You, didn't, you don't like churchy things. You don't like religious languages. And, and it all seems kind of foreign to you and weird. And you think about this, well, looking back on my life, and, it, and there's sort of an, like an empty space there. There's nothing there that you can really look back on. My encouragement to you is to think about these words about God. And even this week, to ask God to make himself real to you, to make himself significant to you. We're talking about the God of the universe who hears prayer. Is he real to you? Can you cry out to him in your life? Well, the second question is about today. And the question that we need to address is the state of our garden, the state of our soil, the soil of our hearts, the soil of our souls. What is the condition of our inner soil, if you will? What does it look like for us? Are we looking back to some so-called glory age? Are we so filled with nostalgia that we are blind to those new rivulets, those new little buds that you see on the trees, those signs of new life? Are we blind to it because we're so trapped in the past? Or are we, are we today feeling quite, quite good? Things are, things are good. Family good, check. Investments on the markets, good. Business good. Kids good, grandchildren, whatever, good. You're checking all the boxes, good. Well, the challenge is to meditate this week on Proverbs 1.32. To spend some time thinking about Proverbs 1.32. It's a challenge. 
And if you are unfamiliar with that verse, it reads, the complacency of fools will destroy them. Or maybe today there's a sort of a glib or maybe a superficial happiness and joy. It's like, oh, great, we can just get back to normal and so on. But it's not really a, a confident hope in this great king. It's not really a, a deeper faith anchored and, and in, in, enmeshed with the God of the universe who's revealed himself. Because the great king doesn't sleep. The great king doesn't stop. The great king is making all things new. The great king is restoring all things to himself. He's not defeated by a pandemic. He's not defeated by a famine. He's not defeated by war. He's restoring and reconciling all things to himself through his son, who will be exalted above all things. He is constantly at work in the world, visibly and invisibly. And therefore, because he is at work, because he is on mission, because he is doing ministry, we too can, by his grace, join with him in what he wants to accomplish on his terms. We can pray for the peoples of Afghanistan. We can pray for those in Surfside, Florida, those who've lost family and loved ones through this terrible loss of this collapse of the tower. We can be engaged here and even in Boston in those who are food insecure, or for those who've been in prison and are looking for a new opportunity in life, a new chapter, new hope, or for those who are facing mental illnesses, perhaps children who've been so challenged during the pandemic. There are ways that we can serve, ways that we can contribute. Why? Because, not because we're good, not because we're holy, not because of any of those things, but because the God of the universe never sleeps. He is restoring all things. He's making all things new. Or maybe, maybe the condition, the soil of your heart is, well, I just feel numb. I mean, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to improve. You look at some of the, the changes and, well... In some ways, that's similar to some of the exiles after they came back from Babylon. After the new temple was built, they looked at it and they wept. They grieved. They lamented. And their wailing was intermingled with the joy and the praise of those other exiles. Why? Because they were looking at this building. It was a shack in comparison to the glories of Solomon's temple. It was a pit in comparison to what they had seen before. And why was it so grievous to them? It was because they were looking to a good thing to become an ultimate thing. They were looking for the gifts of God to satisfy them, not the giver of the gifts to satisfy them. They were looking at these gifts, and we'll come to the table shortly. The gifts of bread and wine, they're not meant to completely satisfy us. They're meant to redirect us, to point us, lifting our eyes unto the hills whence forth comes our help. The purpose of the gift is to reconnect us to the giver, that he may pour down upon our lives his grace and mercy. As we read in, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, it speaks of our true destination, the real Jerusalem, the true Zion, where there's no need for sun and moon to shine upon it because the glory of God will bring it light. The Lamb is its light. The nations, the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the nations will bring their glory into this Zion, into this 
destination, this final and perfect home where there is no sorrow, there is no tear, there is no cancer, there is no divorce, there is no heartbreak, there is only God himself dwelling with his people. This is the true Zion that we are destined for in Christ. This is the place that we are to have our affections. And so on our journey as pilgrims, not to an earthly Jerusalem, but to a heavenly one, may we cry out for streams in our arid souls. May we cry out for steadfastness like Job. And may we, like the Apostle Peter, as he says in his first book, first chapter, you have not seen him, yet you love him. You do not see him now, but you love him and you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. May that joy be on you this Independence Day. And may that joy intensify that appetite for him, increase every day. We do not know how long we have on this earth. Life can be shorter than we think. But may that inexpressible and joyous joy be with you this day, this Independence Day, as we walk with Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you said, for freedom you set us free. True freedom is to know you. We pray that you would free us from our sins, free us from our fears, free us from our bondages, free us from our idols, free us from our false perceptions of ourself, of you, of others. Give us fresh streams in the desert. Give us your food for the journey through the mountains and the valleys, through the plains, in prosperity and adversity. May you, Lord, be our good, great, and chief shepherd. Carry us, Lord, we pray, that we may be filled with a joy because you are a God of joy. For your great name's sake we pray.